This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Looking this morning at verses 1 through 20. This morning, we are uh, in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. Hear the Word of God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the scriptures, and we ask, Lord, for your help as we study this passage this morning. We pray that uh, you would clear away the cobwebs of the early hour. We pray, Father, more importantly, that you would give us that the spirit, that spiritual discernment without which no one can understand and appreciate your word. And we ask it for the sake of Christ and his glory. Amen. He made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions, which would become pillars of the new government. 
He assumed the, assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down by historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially the church newspapers. He showed his tattered Bible, declared how he drew strength from it for his work. As scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Indeed, he was a master of outward religious show. But Adolf Hitler didn't exactly walk the walk. He did not show evidence of the inward reality of the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. Well, this morning as we study this passage, we want to think about that, think about the uh, subject both of the outward appearance Uh, as well as the inward reality of biblical Christianity. As we read this passage, uh, you get a sense of the opposition to Jesus that's beginning to increase. In fact, verse 1 describes how Pharisees, who were kind of the uh, much esteemed religious, conservative religious leaders in Judaism, and the scribes, who were scholars in the Old Testament, experts in the law of God, uh, how there were Pharisees and scribes who came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And that's not, that's not an incidental thing, because at this point, Jesus is still in Galilee in the north. And for a, a deputation of Pharisees and scribes to make that distance, travel that distance, in order to meet with Jesus indicated that uh, they were very interested in him, interested in what he was doing, interested in what he was saying, the kinds of things that he was teaching. They were beginning to keep an eye on him. And these Pharisees and scribes coming from Jerusalem uh, would have been viewed with a certain amount of respect and esteem. After all, they had come from the mother, the cradle of Judaism. Uh, they, they would be received as experts having come from a distance, briefcase in hand. Uh, but they'd come to investigate and to check out Jesus and what he was doing. And in fact, then we read how they begin to question him and Jesus' response. Well, as we look at this passage, we see uh, that it's teaching us that as Christians, we need to be sure that we have a heart for God. We need to be certain that our, really, our, our, our religion, our Christianity, is not a mere form but that we do, in fact, have a heart that is for God. Now, as we look at this passage, it uh, breaks down into two parts, basically reveals to us two insights we need to keep in mind. First is the danger of hypocrisy. The danger of hypocrisy. Look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, What are some of the dangers? Actually, it's not just a uniform danger. We could say it's hypocrisy, but it manifests, manifests itself in different ways. Uh, One of those ways is that of adding to God's word. And certainly we see that here. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes say, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, all of you mothers who've tried to teach your children, wash your hands before you eat, wash your hands before you eat, would probably say, amen. You know, the Pharisees have a point here. They didn't wash their hands. Well, the concern here is not so much for hygiene, 
Uh, and it, children, it is a good thing to wash your hands. You cannot claim biblical authority for refusing to wash your hands before you eat. It's not exactly what they're getting at here. Uh, rather, it was a religious cleanliness. It was a ceremonial clean, cleanliness that, that uh, they were after, uh, which was very carefully regulated. And sprang from a good motive. Uh, Moses in, in Deuteronomy uh, speaks to the people of how, how blessed they are to have the word of God, to have the law of God. To what other nation, he says, has God given his laws as he's given to you, Israel? And they, they took that seriously, and they saw God's word as a precious treasure. But they began to look at it and study it and say, okay, and, and much as we would today, how does this apply? How do we take God's law and bring it to bear on our daily lives? And they went to work on it. And they began to work out in great detail, specified applications, limited, defined, clarified, precise about how the word was to be applied. For example, back when the Lord was providing for his people through manna, he would provide enough for them on, uh, on, on Friday so that it would cover Saturday, the Sabbath. They would not need to go out and gather on Sabbath because that was a day to rest and a day to trust that God's provision was there to recognize ultimately it was God who provided and, and not they themselves. So they took that and kind of made that a permanent thing. The fourth commandment's permanent, but that stipulation not to go out and gather manna. And they said, well, the, the point is you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath day. And they worked it out in such detail as to how many steps you could actually walk on the Sabbath. Uh, they would see carrying a burden outside across the threshold of the door to your home uh, as, as, as violating the command. And so suppose you wanted to provide some mercy to someone on the Sabbath day. Well, if you were to take that provision or that gift and, and, and go outside, you're carrying a burden. You can't do that. Well, what if you could just place it outside the door? And the poor person could come and take it or just set it next to the door and the poor person could reach in and take it. Well, by lifting it off the ground and carrying it out the doorway, you were violating the command. So you could simply hand it across the threshold to the person. They could take it out of your hand, out of the hand, or you could hold it and they could reach in and take it. But by not being placed on the ground, you were okay. That's the kind of minutia and uh, reasoning that went into this tradition that is referred to here, just stifling in its detail. And in fact, we would say ridiculous uh, in how scrupulous they were in working out these ways of applying the law. Remember, a good motive, but the danger was they began to take these minute applications and equate them with God's law. And so what happens here was a very precise way of washing your hands. You had to use so much water. It had to be done in a certain way. And it was not just for hygiene, although perhaps it served that purpose, but more important, it was a way of obeying God. And that's why the Pharisees ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. You see, this is, this is the danger, or one facet of the danger of hypocrisy. It's taking tradition, even good tradition, and making it equal to the law of God. There's a, there's a, a problem here. For example, how, how do you apply the Sabbath law? 
Well, I think there are certain things that God's word specifies. It's very clear about prohibiting commerce on the, the Lord's day. But we have a practice in our house that we just leave the computer off on Sunday. We give the computer a rest, which is a way of giving Barbara a rest from regulating the computer and time on it and playing on it and whatever. Um, we usually don't check email, unless maybe at night for school stuff. Now, suppose I came to you and said, now look, you should not turn your computer on on the Lord's Day. That's a violation of the Fourth Commandment. You would say, get out of here. Right. And rightly so, because that's a that's a way that we apply it, a way that we observe it. But you don't I don't have scriptural mandate to say you can't turn your computer on or check email on the Lord's day. You might say you can't go uh, e-shopping, engaging in commerce, which the Bible speaks to. But as far as checking email or something like that, um, there's, there's no scripture warrant for that. Well, that's that's an aspect of hypocrisy. Now, the church has been full of that. I mean, not just the Jews, uh, but over the centuries, this danger of taking either personal convictions and equating them with God's law and making them mandatory for everybody or establishing as God's law things that the scriptures actually have never taught. There is a there is a good tradition in the Reformed faith of singing only the Psalms, Psalms one through one fifty. And that's a tradition in the Reformed Church. And in fact, uh, unfortunately, all too often, the singing of psalms has fallen by the wayside in the Reformed Church. Uh, some of the, the hymns that we sing in the Trinity Hymnal are either metrical psalms themselves or adaptations of psalms. Many of Isaac Watts' hymns are adapted from psalms. Uh, now, with all due respect to those of my brothers uh, in Christ and the Reformed Church who feel otherwise, I, I personally think that to make that the law is, is adding a law where God has not. I don't find that command in Scripture, that we may sing only Psalms 1 through 150 and nothing else. Uh, I certainly think we should be singing Psalms 1 through 150, but to limit it only to that, I don't find uh, as a command of God. A tradition, yes, and in many ways a, a good one with good motives. But to make that the law of God, I would go on record as saying I see that as adding to God's law. I don't find that command in Scripture. So that's a danger that goes along with this kind of thing, adding to God's word. But there's another danger here that's part of this hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and that is uh, rationalizing disobedience to God's word. Now, that's just the Pharisees. You and I would know nothing about that, of course, but let's talk about it anyway rationalizing disobedience to God's word. Look at verses 3 through 6. Jesus doesn't really answer the question, but he, he, he offers a counter question. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So they say, you know, your disciples, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. Well, Jesus turns around and says, why do you break the command of God for the sake of the tradition? Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Well, he explains. God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Fifth commandment, right? And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Another command that we find there in Exodus. But that's what God says. But you say, the Pharisees and scribes say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. There was a tradition that you could take certain portion of, of your wealth or your possessions and say, that this is set apart for God. When I die, this will be given to the temple. This will be given to God. And since I've set it apart for that purpose, I can't use it for something else. 
So, dear father or mother, whatever other help I might otherwise have been able to give you is already devoted to God. Very inconvenient. So sorry. Um, And what does Jesus say about that? He says at the end of verse 6, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The higher obligation here is not to set apart something to go to God at your death. It is to honor your father and mother. It's to provide for them. It's to show that compassion in practical ways uh, and helping to provide and take for them and take care of them. And so that's how they get around being obedient to the fifth commandment. Now, that's that's a tendency of the heart. We we sin and we we justify it. We excuse it. We rationalize it to ourselves. Well, I know we're not married yet, but we're really in love. We're planning to get married. Um, if I give this money to the IRS, the government's only going to misuse it. They're going to they're spend it in ways I don't agree with. Uh, they might use it to support things that are immoral. Uh, so I'm not going to mention that income on my tax return because the government doesn't need that money. They'll only, they'll only misspend it. Uh, we rationalize sinning in all kinds of ways. I can be unkind to my wife. She, was, she said something unkind to me last week. All kinds of ways that we rationalize and excuse sinning. So rationalizing disobedience to God's word is part of this web of hypocrisy these, Jesus is going after here. But also a superficial obedience to God's word. Just on the surface. Just looking like we're doing what we need to do. Look at 7 through 9. How does Jesus respond to them? He says in verse 7, you hypocrites. First instance in Matthew, but not the last, in which Jesus uh, applies that term to the uh, Pharisees. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Now, notice Jesus didn't say, you know, Isaiah prophesied of those who lived in his day, but it also applies to you. He says, Isaiah prophesied of you. Why? Well, these were the descendants of those to whom Jesus or, or Isaiah spoke. Uh, they were sharing in the same kind of sin, the same hypocrisy, the same appearance of righteousness without the reality. And so Jesus quotes from that passage we read earlier. This people honors me with their lips. They say the right things. They confess the right things. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The very thing Isaiah spoke about, Jesus accuses the Pharisees here of doing, taking the tradition and using that as a way to get around obedience to God's word. And in fact, giving an appearance of obedience that's that's totally empty. There's no heart in it. They honor Jesus. They honor God with their lips. But their hearts were really devoted to other things, themselves, their own interests, their own advancement, whatever. You see, really, the problem here is a form of religion, an outward appearance of devotion to God, but they don't really love God. They're content to simply please, impress, get by with other people, but they don't really love God. They're not devoted to him. They're not concerned to serve him with everything in their being. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the uh, 19th century A bishop in the Church of England uh, says this about this passage. He says, the heart is the principal thing in the relation of husband and wife, of friend and friend, of parent and child. The heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all the relations between God and our souls. 
What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? Circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. God will not be bought off. He's not impressed by outward religious activity. He sees the heart. He wants the heart, and he will settle for nothing less. There's the danger of hypocrisy that every one of us can fall into. Now, hypocrisy is not falling short of a professed ideal or standard. We all fall short. But hypocrisy creeps in when we begin intentionally to deceive, intentionally to try to look better than we are, or at worst, purposing in our hearts to sin even as we present a front of righteousness to others. Does Christ have your heart? You know, Peter says to us who believe he is precious. Is Christ more precious to you than anything else in this world or outside this world? Do you love him? Are you here this morning because you love Jesus? Because you want to worship God? Well, I mean, for all of us, 8.30, 9.45, 11 o'clock rolls around, and part of it is a function of habit and schedule, we're here. But when it gets right down to it, do you want to be here? Or would you rather be doing something else today? You see, God wants the heart. He doesn't just want outward religion. You don't just do your Sunday duty and then go live your life the way you want to. That's hypocrisy, my friends. Christ condemns it. He wants your heart. But there's another... Uh, insight that we derive from this passage as, as Jesus goes on, and it comes in the second half of the passage, and that is the source of defilement. We've looked at the danger of hypocrisy. Well, here he talks about the source of defilement. He actually does answer the question of the Pharisees uh, here after confronting their own hearts, uh, their own emptiness, spiritual death. He does answer the question here about hand washing and all of that. First, we have here this critique of the Pharisees uh, and their response to it, you see this in verse 12. The disciples came and they said, Did you know that the Pharisees really didn't like the way you spoke to them, Jesus? Now, the disciples, like most everybody in that day, admired the Pharisees. They respected the Pharisees because what they saw was the religious front. To use Jesus' later image, they saw the white Wash the white painting on the outside of the tomb. But what a pretty tomb. What they didn't see was the corruption, the rotted bones on the inside, which is what Jesus saw. So Jesus has the difficult and delicate task of disabusing his disciples of any notion that they need to be following the Pharisees in any way. And so he speaks to them here. He also uh, brings up the subject in chapter 16 where he says, watch out for the leaven uh, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they talk about what Jesus means by that. But here's what Jesus says to them. Every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, the Father hasn't planted the Pharisees to be, uh, to be the leaders. They are to be the, 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 the leaders and instructors of the people. They will be rooted up. Jesus says, let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind follow the blind, they're both going to get into trouble. They're both going to walk out into a busy street. They're both going to fall into a hole. 
is what he's saying. And so he's beginning to say to the disciples, look, you need to see the Pharisees for what they are, for who they are. Uh, people who are, yes, in a position of power and in some ways teach the right things. In another place, Jesus says, you know, do what they do, to do what they teach, right? But don't do what they do. They do sit in Moses' seat. They have some good things to say, but don't be like them in this. So this critique of the Pharisees, but then also here, Jesus speaks to what we eat. And in effect, he declares the fulfillment of the Old Testament dietary laws. Look at what he says in, in, in verse 10. Hear and understand. It's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now, Jesus is speaking here not simply in terms of hygiene or the mere act of physically eating something. There are things we could eat that would poison us, that would harm us, that would defile us. He's just talking about ordinary food here. But he's more importantly, he's talking about it in a spiritual way. What really makes someone righteous? And then again, he says in verse 17, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as is expelled? Mark makes it explicit that when Jesus said this, he declared all foods clean. Uh, the disciples didn't really begin to understand this uh, later in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, where the Lord gives Peter that vision of the sheet that comes down with all kind of creatures on it and says, you know, take, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord says, don't call unclean what God has declared clean. Now, that applied in a dietary way, but it also applied, as we see, to the Gentiles. Uh, to their being brought into the people of God, into the kingdom. So as a fulfillment of the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament in Jesus, what Jesus has made clean is no longer unclean. But then he speaks about the true source of defilement. Look at, um, look at verse 18. He says, what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. Out of the heart come these different things, these sins that he lists, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are the things that defile a person. It's not whether you wash your hands right. It's not, uh, you know, as long as you don't, uh, as long as you don't miss on Sunday or something. But it's the, it's the matter of the heart that defiles you. What comes out of your heart? What is the nature, the condition of your heart? Because it will show itself. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they strain out a gnat, but they swallow a camel. They're concerned about these little bitty details, while all the while missing the larger issues of justice and compassion and righteousness. Well, what's your heart like? You see, you can put on the show, but eventually your heart will reveal itself. And Jesus says, if from the heart of a person comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander... These are the things that defile you. And you know what? Every one of us is defiled by that standard. Because we have sinful hearts. We have rebellious hearts. We have fallen hearts. And Jesus makes it plain to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anybody. God is indifferent as far as how you washed your hands is concerned. It's not a point of righteousness. But what comes from your heart is... And that's what he's teaching here, not just defilement, but about righteousness. 
Righteousness doesn't consist in little man-made regulations and details that have out to do with how we live outwardly. But what's the condition of the heart? Every one of us has a defiled heart. The Pharisees have a defiled heart. The disciples have a defiled heart. Jesus did not have a defiled heart, which qualified him to be the Savior, the substitute for those of us who do and to die in their place. The problem is we're all defiled, whether you wash your hands right or not, because we all have sinful hearts. We all have rebellious hearts that disobey. Jeremiah 17:9, a verse I'm sure you've heard. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But we're Christians now. Yes, and you have a new heart. What is our obligation? It's to guard your heart, to watch your heart. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Keep your heart with all diligence and God will look after the universe. We tend to get that reversed, don't we? We tend to want to run the universe and forget our own hearts. God says, you take care of your heart. You guard your heart. Watch your heart. I'll run the universe. Again, J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Let it be a settled resolution with us that in all our religion, the state of our hearts shall be the main thing. Let it not content us to go to church and observe the forms of religion. Let us look far deeper than this and desire to have a right heart in the sight of the Lord. Let us never forget that our chief danger is from within. The world and the devil combined cannot do us so much harm as our own hearts will if we do not watch and pray. How is your heart? How is your heart as God sees it? You want to know your heart? What do you like when you're by yourself? Or better yet, what do you like when you're by yourself driving in Atlanta traffic? With the illusion of anonymity. You want to know your heart? You'll see it then. Sometimes in all its ugliness. But religion isn't enough. We need the gospel. We need a new heart before God. We need a heart for God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself as one who stands in this pulpit every Sunday, that I would be by myself, that I would be in my home, that I would be in the study, that I would be when I'm alone, exactly what I am when I stand here. And Lord, I pray that for every one of us in this room, that we would in fact be what we appear to be when we are here with you worshiping on Sunday morning. Father, obviously at times less formal, more relaxed. Uh, And yet, Lord, I pray that we would be fundamentally the same people, regardless of where we are, regardless of the company that we're in, people who love you, people who desire to obey you, people, Lord, who, when we disobey you, flee to the cross, seek your forgiveness, rejoice in the cleansing of Christ. Father, I pray that our righteousness would not be certainly a mere show or even just an outward appearance but would truly come from a heart that loves and knows you. We thank you, O God, for our Lord Jesus. Thank you that because he died, we died with him. Because he was raised, we have been raised with him to new life. And I pray that would be real and evident in us all. In Jesus' name, amen.